0: I'm going to direct your eyeballs right now to 1st or 2nd Samuel, pardon me. And so put your fingers in that spot. And because we are picking up where we left off last Sunday, which I think is going to be our tradition right now, moving from Sundays to Thursdays, just finishing up where the Lord has put us in the life of David, great things to do. By our tradition in eight years, we've been doing New Testament on Sundays and Old Testament on Thursdays. A couple of summers ago, we were doing summers in the Psalms, and that might be, again, something that we continue if we give the understanding and history of David just a rest. But let's go ahead and pick this up and then put ourselves in just a little bit of reminder as to what that theme was about. I recall the title. It was this When Generals Become Kings. And when generals become kings, then generalities become acceptable. And what is acceptable in generalities very often is a violation of what God says are the ordinances that direct a person's life. We've all made them before. The world makes more of them. And unfortunately, what they need to be doing is making more of God. When we make more of God, then our decisions aren't going to be simply on generalities. They're going to be on the specifics of what God wants for our lives and where he wants us to be in our life. So hence, when we come back into the intro of chapter 2, we commend David because he sought the Lord on God's terms, not his strategies. He'd been on the run for 10 years, and he learned enough about checking in with God that to move from that pattern could potentially cost him much. And he was tired of what he had had to pay. Staying on the run and doing everything possible to not sin against God by taking out the king that he knew he was ultimately going to displace. But it was going to be in God's timing and not according to David's strategy, not according to the urgings of David's men who loved him and they were weary when we get weary we make decisions that are intentional to put ourselves at rest before God has desire of that therefore one of the things that we saw here is that David was being given an opportunity to rest from the severity and the exhaustion of being on the run and displaced for approximately 10 years now. About a 30-year-old at this time, his directives from God were, go to Hebron, pull out of Ziklag, go to Hebron. And in the cities that were around them, or that central area, he would be inhabiting, he was probably centrally in the larger community, And those men who followed him with their families would occupy. And that would be their place. That's where David would reign. The scriptures tell us, history certainly has documented, that that's going to be about seven and a half years. So most of us can say, what's seven and a half years in my life? What does that mean? What have I been doing in seven and a half years? Well, I'm just, you know, able to say conveniently that, we've been here eight years in September. So I kind of have an idea of what that feels like. And for us, I can say that we are settled in and seasoned in our time. But it wasn't simple. There were things that were required that were new of us. But I know this, even though Perhaps simplicity evaded us for a season. God's peace did not. That brings me to something right now because it is not unusual that when God's endeavoring to give a person rest, he confirms that with his peace. What we see here as we left off from Sunday was a time in which there was unrest between two people groups that actually were considered by God as one. But they had been divided. They had been divided because Saul, who was king and very much a carnal king and compromising king, had set his eyes not on God, not on the will of the Lord, but on trying to put David down, whom the scriptures tell us he actually loved at one time. And David, unwilling to let that issue become his conflict, or his violation against God, he would not allow anything to usurp an honorable act of sacrifice and, even if necessary, the withholding of his peace and even what may be described as a very unpeaceable time on the run. So how can you tell when you're in the place that God wants you, even though there's at times this conflict and turmoil? Well, he gives us some clues. But at the same time, it is not unusual for God to increase us in what we also learn today, which is his patience, developing our character as we are calling upon him, And though we would perhaps desire to short-circuit it, most of us have come out on the other side of that and said, it was a season that was eternal, but we see now, coming out of it, it was for eternity. God did something in me that proved himself much larger than, than the convenience of having something easier for me. And so I've learned about God in that manner. Even as I get older, And that has a whole different predicament because a lot of us don't like getting older, but that also has something that, that God grants us. And that's a better understanding of him through experience and then less of ourselves to boast in. I'm becoming less able to boast in myself than I was when I was younger. I've recognized so many things have fallen apart, literally in this body system that I just try to hold it together with clothes that sometimes barely drape and things that I see clearly that are not youthful but I'm reminded that my youthfulness is restored day by day as I seek the Lord now some may say so this enter right now does it does this have literally something with the core of what is being presented. And I do believe that it does. In fact, because there isn't really from at least my teaching experience, a lot that remains in closing off this chapter. I think the title is very apropos, Residency in Disunity. That's what I'm calling it. Residency in Disunity. Now, if a doctor hears that word, he knows where he's going to be. He's going to be proven as stuff, not as one with great experience, but one who has knowledge that now needs to be tested in the battlefield of the ER, in the time in which there is um, the application of, of sitting humbly before men and women that have greater experience and knowledge. And some doctors, I'm sure, are quite challenged with that because they come out thinking much of themselves and ready to tackle on everything that they do not yet have the experience of. The residency is an important time for doctors in their maturity being able to be truly qualified to take on anything. David's being prepared right now to take on everything, an entire nation of people. But he's only given one facet of it, literally the tribe of Judah. That's who he's responsible for right now. And David already has many things to be able to consider in thankfulness to God's faithfulness, having so little of what ought to be his portion. One of the things that I've learned is to give thanks to God for the little in what is the expectancy of the greater portion. Why? Why? well I think it does a couple of things it lets God know that I appreciate everything that he has done and I think it reaffirms to him that I'm not going to make something of what I get larger that will become bigger than who he is I think that's good I believe there's advancement and progression that is intended by God some men are given much but some men do not make much of the little that God has given to them. And as a result, there's an unnecessary contention with the people that they're with, and at times the progress that God wants to make. So it can be dynamic. In this scene that we took off from last week, Sunday, we see two characters that we know are a part of God's plan, ultimately in, in David's advancement. And they would be, from anybody's evaluation, a predicament if you had them as personnel. You'd go, really? I got these guys? So the Lord knows as well about that kind of a thing. We talked about the thing the other day in the morning devotional time. The Lord knows about that, the predicament of the personnel that you get don't get you and they want to just get each other they want to go after each other David is silenced right now in this part of the scriptures and I believe that that silence is intentional because it shows you that at times in our predicaments and in the personnel that we have to deal with and in the persons of our family God is saying in what seems to be his vacating the proximity that we need him at, you're going to learn from this. And I've never left you in this. I'm just in a place right now that causes you to go deeper with me. Have have wisdom imparted to you. Patience by the bucket loads poured on you, all of these things that, that we would say, non-essential guts is very essential, and I'm with you. You're going to listen more keenly to me. There are resignations that you're going to make that otherwise you wouldn't have. And so even though David is on the scene, he's not a part of this. In other words, there's a major skirmish right now. There's a battle that's taken place between these generals who are behaving like Kings and they're causing casualties. So we have that as well in our real life experiences In Amos three, three, the word of the Lord says, unless two be agreed, how can they walk together? Well, the Lord desires us to walk together. And sometimes agreeability is more than simply agreeing to disagree. It's actually resignation. I have a point. This is my position. I can anchor it. But for your sake, I'm going to yield. And that's one of the hardest things to do. Why? Because everybody can justify the position that they have based on where they're at, their experiences, and ultimately what's in it for them when you come out on the other side. I believe most importantly, though, it's not always about yielding. And sometimes it's the requirement of being so convinced of what God has told you to do that you're willing to show the peaceable attributes of God and believing that that other person will come around even as they are positioning themselves to resist for the sake and purposes of ultimately being partnered with you. They will come around because you've held your position in peace and therefore the peace of God comes into your situation, overwhelming the person and ultimately what they want and you walk together. But it is at that time and only that time, that con- contracts can be forged and in which you can truly give your heart to that individual. But until that comes, you give your heart to God. That's what I'm learning. That's what I found. That's what I believe is happening here. Unless to be agreed, how can they walk together? That's the question. They can only walk together if agreement is satisfied ultimately by the peace of God, which he grants to two people that are what? Submitted to him. Got to be submitted to the Lord. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. But it doesn't mean you can't see God at work. Just because one doesn't submit, it does not mean that you cannot see God at work if you'll trust him. Important there as well. We don't have to compromise in areas in which God has been very much assuring you through his word you may say do we get on with this lesson well this lesson's important because there's a narrative here there's conflict in the scriptures it's like we haven't seen church family in what a month and a half and though there are things about that you go this is weird and there're also things about it you go wow there's kind of a refreshing side here, too, because there's not the mechanics of managing people. But then you're drawn back going, I want to be a part of the management. Of people. I want to actually be managed with people by God. I enjoy the fellowship. And some may say, I'm annoyed with the fellowship. But I believe it's a little bit of both. I believe that on a Sunday we are to experience the tensions of living as human beings who are in the process of being worked on and things being worked out of us so that the battlefield becomes limited on the carnage of what happens when we do things in our flesh to take a position and have possessions that are not from God. So when we see the congregations, We're mindful that God's inviting us in as a family that has many problems. And if he checked our ID and he checked our hearts at the door and displayed those, many of us would probably be sent back at you. You can't be here. We just saw what was projected in the heart meter here. It's just not going to work. But God says, come on in because I work precisely in that area. And so there are times that even in church, in what... Is the title to residency and disunity? God brings the family together, and we need to pray that the Lord brings the family together because the battlefield gets stacked with bodies unnecessarily, with people that are meant to be united. That's the unfolding of the lesson. He's not interested in carnage on the battlefield when he gave his life for man on the cross. That was as much carnage as was necessary and God subjected himself to it for the purpose of drawing all men to himself. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. That was his word and it's a true word. So he's not re-crucified It means that that act of being crucified settled the issue of disunity and compels us in the argument of residency regardless. So even that we know at times on a Sunday, it's not like our best day. should be, but it's at times, quite honestly, not our best day. It's God's day. And he can make the best of it however he wants to. And he can have a good work that's best for us if we let him. But it's also very possible, even today in the homes that are our chapels, there are little mini chapels, there are little sanctuaries, our little synagogues, our teaching zones, our family centers, our family fun centers, our torture chambers. Men may indeed say, I'm going home and getting my shellacking. And we know what ultimately that leads to. That's a corner of the roof where they talk things out with God. And women may very well say, I'm going to go home and get my patty whacking. And we know that that means the kitchen, meatloafs and burgers on the grill with nobody to do the dishes and everybody fighting at the table. (laughs) Is this really about David? It is. It's about conflict. It's taking from a situation historically and it's applying it contemporarily right now. We're not to be at war with one another and we are not to be at war within our nation. We're to be at oneness with God. That's what it means. Okay, let's pick it up so I can show you that we can move through this. So if you've just tuned in, you haven't lost your space or place. We're going to begin at verse 16 of chapter 2, eh, a little bit farther down from that. We already know that these guys had a conflict in the center, Metas warriors. Twelve guys from each side died, and the battle's not over. There's a settlement that's taking place. So there was a very fierce battle, verse 17, that day and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of God. Now, Abner's men outnumbered David's men. So how could this be? Because one represents the men who are following a man after God's own heart and the other, Abner, represents a man who followed a man that had no heart for God. So that's one of the clues. We need to follow those who have a heart for God. Why? Because there is in this picture a battle that ultimately has a betterment because of whom you are siding with. If you've got to take sides, take sides with men and women of God who have hearts for the Lord. You don't want to mix politics in with it. You don't even want to mix family blood in with it. Sometimes that's very disagreeable. You want to say that family, that man or woman, that church, they follow God. They have a heart that beats for the Lord. And so this is one of the things that we see is that God is giving David favor, even in his absence And that's one of the things that's amazing about God is, though absent, he gives favor. How how did this happen? God's favor. Well, how do we know it's God's favor? Because it's favorable to a man who's following after his heart. I've seen that time and time again where the odds are against you. It doesn't make sense how you could come out from that situation a victor. It's because God's done it. And all he wants you to do is acknowledge it as a testimony of him. That's one of the things about maturing when the odds are against you, you learn how to see God in it and to tell people about it so that when they go through a time in which they blame God for not being a part of their life, you can say, put on your spiritual glasses, clean them, ask God to open your eyes. I can see God in this circumstance. I can see precisely what he's doing behind the scenes that you feel he's absent from. Don't give up. Don't shut the word. Don't shut people out of your life that are intended by God to strengthen you in this battle. And so as this battle rages and there's been victory right now because Abner's men are getting a shellacking. It tells us that there's going to be a skirmish right now. And this is very often what happens. Abner probably would have done well to say, this isn't going well. It is not going well. My strategy to have 12 guys on that side, 12 guys on that side, swords, meet in the middle, bloodbath, not going well. He had evidence right now. It's not going well. They're beating me. Because we know that Abner had motivations linked to the monarchy. So that's one of the things as well that we learn as we follow the Lord. When he's not in it, and when in fact we need to say he's not in it. He's not in it. I'm not going to continue on with this strategy. He's not in it. That can mean many things for all of us. But in this case we know that Abner's intention to preserve the kingdom of Saul was an errant strategy to begin with. So he advances right now, basically taking off, and it says on the run, but actually what he should have done was throw up the white flag. However, truces were arranged, he needed to scream out to Job, Joab, "Joab, got to talk. This is not of God. I can see it. I can sense it. It's my fault. I brought us here together. Thought we could settle this. It's not working. We're through. We're through. Brothers of Israel, lay down your swords. Throw down your armor. David's the one. I've known that for 10 years. David's the one. Joab's the general. If they'll have us, let's link up. It could have been settled by that method but because God likes to reveal to us the tensions and our human arrogance and how we try to solve things run away from things try to always get our favor and advantage from the very thing that God has made evident we continue It says this there are three sons of Zariah. Zariah is David's sister. Where she is in the placement, in which brothers have been told before, how David was obviously brought in. There were seven brothers. David was brought in. There are two sisters. She's one of them. And her kids are, in fact, Joab. And that's the general. And then he has brothers. One is Eshael. And one is Azahel. So David's got basically nephews right now that are part of his contingency force. And they're going to do something right now that will ultimately be a problem in the next couple of verses. One of them Heads out, pursuing Abner. And Abner's on the run right now. Rather than asking or seeing that his men surrender, they're just on the run. Would have done them better to have not had that happen. So it says that Asael, this is verse 18, was his fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. That's the last guy I'd be wanting to run from. Unless I had a motorcycle back then, a horse. I wouldn't want to be running from that kind of guy. And Abner, remember, isn't a young guy. These guys right now, there's there's two thoughts on this. That David had an older sister and these guys are actually older than David. And that's possible if you're the runt of a family and you have older siblings you can have where there's a nephew that could be older than you. And this may be that case. But we know this, that where Saul was at and Abner and Saul were cousins, there was probably just about 10 to 17 years that separated them. So Abner very likely would have been more of the age of Jonathan. And for 58-year-old to be running right now, ahead of These guys that quite possibly are 40, no less than 30 years of age, 40. I'm assuming that this is probably correct. David being cited as the youngest, the girl somewhere in between. But nevertheless, even if we put them at a younger age, this guy is pretty impressive. He's been in pursuit of David with Saul for over 10 years, and now he's running so fast that this guy has to be documented as As fast as a gazelle, which means this guy has to come up with the strategy, knowing that he probably can only keep that pace for so long. To some degree, again, it's a carnal strategy. It's a battle strategy. It's going to work because it'll end up taking this guy's life. But it wasn't his intention to do that. It's just the consequence of what has happened because he didn't have humility to say enough is enough. So as he's on the run, and now the race of this fleet footed wild gazelle following him, Asahel pursued Abner, and in going he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. He's lasered on him like a we'd call it a heat-seeking missile. Back then they just called him a fleet footed gazelle. Bounding, hurtling. In fact, they're moving through the carnage of a fierce battle that has taken place because that's what happened. And so this is interesting too. Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? He answered, I am. How would he have known the names? Here's how. These guys have been a part of David's army. He was probably very aware that there's a fast guy, like a gazelle, who seems to be evasive on every maneuver that that Saul has made against him. And even what at times were those guys being surrounded against all odds. There's this guy that just moves from rock to rock to sand dune like a gazelle. They can never catch him. Hey, you that guy that I've seen in battle before. But to think that these guys are running and they're holding a conversation is also rather extraordinary. And it shows you what guys can do when their intentions are to have the better of the other. There's no doubt that Abner wants the better of this guy who's pursuing him. And there's no doubt that Asahel wants the better of the man that he's pursuing. One is that he figures that in putting down Abner, he can in that moment promote himself. My brother's a general. I'll get a couple of bars ahead of him, a couple of stars ahead of him. If I put down this guy, David very likely could exalt me and I don't have to be in the battalion anymore. I'm not saying that that happened, but he definitely has a zeal to take out the major general right now of Israel, who's right now hiding Ishbosheth, the youngest son of Saul. And so, as Ashael would not turn, Abner was saying to him in verse 21, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. This means following in fleet-footedness, catching up, bringing the distance closer. I don't know if you've ever had those dreams where just you can't escape and somebody's getting just really close to you. And it's like, wow, when will this end? That's kind of what's happening right now. The gap is closing. So Abner said again to S.A.L., turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? Now that's kind of interesting because it is telling it seems to me that he realizes this is going to create even a bigger predicament than the one he's just running from. We see a sensitivity that he doesn't want to cause greater division. He doesn't know how to get out of it. He's warning this young guy, stop what you're doing. And it's very likely that Abner having stopped with what this guy now has a passion to do, which is to kill him, Maybe it's to capture him. I don't think so. I think it was to kill him. Then everything right now an Abner is to defend himself. And that's one of the problems. When you're pursuing to the end of your means for whatever purpose and someone is exhausted, they can make a decision ultimately that terminates. And it appears that this is really what is happening with Abner right now. He he realizes he's lost in the ferocious battle that has taken place, and he just doesn't know how to stop this guy persuasively. By the way, when you look at the armor, Abner is basically saying there's a lot of guys dead, and with what you could be doing, which is basically take their armor, take the Basically, the coinage in their pocket, any of the valuables, that's your booty. That's what a warrior gets. Enrich yourself while you can before I have to do something that will basically take you out. And he uses this, that I could not face your brother, Joab. It almost seems as though Abner wants another opportunity. However, he refused to turn aside, therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asihel fell down and died, stood still. In this particular strategy, basically what happened is, as we examine it, both of them running from for forward abner seeing that he could not persuade this guy to stop he just planted his javelin would have been faced forward with the spear he plants it in the sand in his running course stops and the blunt end is what it says basically penetrated the stomach and out through the back of S.I.L. He basically threw himself on the spear. That was the strategy that that was indeed Abner's. He may have very well have learned that in battle by experience. If If a guy's coming after you, running that hard, and he's going to take you out and down, plant your spear that you will have no opportunity to throw, or no opportunity that in their strength over you, you can defend yourself, and it will do its work because he will not have time to start. stop. So he impaled himself. The javelin stays in him. Abner runs off with those yet that he's collecting because that's what he's doing. They're all running from now the battle scene, and because of this casualty, all of the men... That not only uh, Joab represents, but every single person right now is just aghast. And also, right now, in sympathy for, there's been a death. And so we're even going to see how that is handled. As this now stops everyone, Joab and Abishai, those are the two brothers, also pursued abner and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of amma which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of gibeon so back covering the scene of the death are those that are remaining of the troops there are those that are tending his body joab and the other brother continue to pursue abner abner has the rest of his army that are following and so this tells us their location and now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of the hill. So in essence, what he's been able to do is stop a majority of them in time to get collected with the rest of his troops and on the hill. It says that he now has basically a platoon larger than that, a company of men that are standing as brothers, unified once again. They got overwhelmed before, but now they're on a, precipice. They're on the higher plane and they're on a place right now where they have the best advantage. That very often happens in spiritual life when there's casualties. Somebody gets a momentary advantage that God never intended, but they get it because it wasn't stopped in time. And whichever party was responsible for it, again, that's always having to think about it. In this case, though, we have to say that Abner by far had more evidence that he could have stopped this earlier. To me, that's evident. But nevertheless, what happens right now is that there's a fortification. In other words, there's there is this reinforcement that's come, so the issue has not yet been settled. And where they are now gathering on top of this hill, eventually... They are caught up to. They're gathered around, become a unit, took their stand on top of the hill. Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? So they have right now the advantage of being on the hill. And as a unit, and it is right now, Abner who is calling out reasonably to Joab that he doesn't want this division. So that's a good thing. Will Joab be one who in his temperament right now, in his deep loss of a brother, be able to accept those terms? And if he accepts those terms, are they genuine acceptance or does it lead to something that is a strategy to make up later in what you would call a recompense? I'm going to get even with this guy. But it shows you right now the tension that's created in conflicts in which the first opportunity to have peace was passed. And it's not saying in this that there wasn't a means by which that could have been brokered. It's just saying it must be brokered. More patience, more time. And even this, God's going to use this casualty to allow there to be a recollection on this battlefield. So as the unit forms, as Abner cries out, and he says, Get your men to return and not pursue us as their brethren. But there's already been a loss on both sides. The one that, remember, has suffered the greatest loss is Abner. Could have been sufficient for Job to say, that's as far as I'm going to take it. As I look at the bodies, more of them than of us. God's with us. I'm going to be now forging terms of peace. See, it wasn't Abner's position to do it. He didn't. But now, literally, it's in Joab's position to do it. He was able to take inventory in the battlefield. He was able to obviously know that he lost his brother in it. That's a hard thing. But he could have been able to say, with what wisely came out of Abner's mouth, we're brethren. Are you really going to press this to where we can't come to terms? I blew it to begin with, but do you have to contribute to this now being something that is untenable for us? And so Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning, all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. And this is a term that I think is important as well in this. Somebody's got to continually to be willing to voice terms of peace. Now, in this case, Joab seems to be snidely saying, unless you had voiced that, I would have pursued you until my energy had been exhausted and all resources depleted. But he's giving an acknowledgement that in some way, God is working to pull him back by this plea for peace. That's a good thing. It doesn't mean that the outcome will be as soon as they ought to have found it, or that there may not be necessarily a consequence still remaining, because we know how this story works out. But nevertheless, it does show you that in a predicament, the Desire and strategy to get the issue settled, to be a peacemaker, is a good thing. It's the right thing to do, even if it's ignored. There is a chance that somebody may begin to hear the terms of peace and even be able to say, God's called me back from what I was intending to do, from actually what I'm strategizing to do because there are terms of peace that are being brokered. But the tension right now is what is the sorrow of loss. So it's very sensitive ground to be on. Joab blows the trumpet. All the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anyone. Then Abner and his men went... On all that night, through the plain, crossed over the Jordan and went through all um, Bithron and they came to Mahaniam, and that is basically the city of refuge where ish is hiding. And Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants, 19 men, and Esahel. So it would be considered a very light loss in terms of the skirmish and what ultimately was a severe defeat for Abner. He was able to say, God was with me in this. God was with David on this battle. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. So you can see the odds right there displayed. They took up Asahel, Asahel, And buried him in his father's tomb which was in Bethlehem and Joab and his men went all night and they came to Hebron at daybreak and so when we look at ultimately this closure right now both have gone to their corners and though there isn't resolve there ultimately is going to continue to be favor that is directed towards David in being established in Hebron and it allows, again, the opportunity to weigh things out. How will this people group go? How will these warriors ultimately finish up? Who is going to prevail in in this civil war? We have a civil war in our country. It's not pretty. It's not the way that we are to behave with one another. We're to get things done in the highest echelon of our country as a nation that is under God because we don't necessarily, by a majority, care about what God thinks and how he wants us to do things. We are at disunity. We have, in essence, a somewhat subtle and political civil war That doesn't make for unity causes conflicts even in what the church does so well in bringing people together but when you no longer have a government governance in which the people of God those who have been given authority seek the will of God and seek the house of God it's a house that surely begins to follow the ways of carnality and the ways of violence and of disorder and dysfunction. And that is not pretty, and it ultimately leaves a nation vulnerable to be vanquished because of the absence of God. Not necessarily the heart of God that a nation be vanquished that at one time followed him, but the consequence of God literally removing himself because people no longer want him. And the authority that he gave them, and they make decisions that violate him. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. It might have been even at that time that Abner did pause, maybe even risked his life. I weep for what has happened surely you heard me You were following fast behind him I warned him twice to cease from running after me surely as God is my witness and as you may have heard this was not intended Joab and witnesses could have said you're right we heard that we heard it our brother our gazelle brother he never got it excelled in speed and athleticism and a warrior spirit Never got it. So he now got it. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And if it is possible, and it is, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. But rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. In essence, there in the reading, is that it's not for you to be wrathful. It's God's place. In his time, he will make the correction that is necessary, and he will do it surgically, incisively, victoriously. Says the Lord, therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's a strange term, but it means blessings that allow him to kindle the fire that will warm his food in the evening and in the night, and provide fuel for the warmth of his house. That's in First Corinthians, excuse me, Romans twelve, and I pick that up at verse 18 for those of you that like to tag scripture. But also in closing, this is classic of chapter 13, closing in verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We took a picture of what happens when the absence of love is allowed to be given way to the insightful tendencies of human behavior that fights and quarrels so easily. And so we brought it back to where we had principles of conduct Both of those men were doing what they'd been doing for all the years that they'd been doing it. And that's the difficulty is when you're good at doing what it is you do, it's hard to change to do what it is God wants you to do. And the only way you can do it is by the work of the Holy Spirit and the resignation. Not my way, but God's way. Not my will, but His will. Not the broad path, but the narrow path. But Lord, I'm I have a tendency to be over sentimental and I can move just on sentiment alone. Lord, I have too much of a tendency to be lawful and I can cause problems with that as well. Help me be centered and balanced and to know how in my battle, you get the victory. And I am rewarded ultimately in the blessings of what you allowed to happen, the things that I learned of you, and ultimately the limitation of the bloodbath.